Well, we were, have just been singing about Christ's glory, and we are going to continue our series in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 46, and we're going to see this path to glory as, as Christ sets his face to Jerusalem to suffer and die for our sins. And we're going to be talking about three ways that, that we want to respond to Jesus as, as we see him here in God's word. So I was thinking about this passage. I realized that, that each of us is searching for significance. And where we search for significance, where we find that significance in our life is, is one of the most important things about us. I, growing up, really loved Star Wars, and sometimes as I was on my way to school, I would, I would kind of start to daydream, and I would imagine that I was a Jedi, uh, which is pretty far-fetched. I've never used the Force so far. Uh, but I would come up with these scenarios where I would go to school, and a bad guy, a Sith, would come, and I, as the Jedi, would use my force powers and, and my lightsaber and, and save the day. And that was probably the most common, but not the only scenario where I, I envisioned myself as the hero, as, as the center of what was going on. And, and that was really, as a young child, the way I, I struggled to find significance, a struggle that's carried to this day and, and a desire that each one of us has. But really, as, as we look into God's word, we see that we don't need to be searching for, for greatness, for respect or admiration in the eyes of those around us, but there's only one person's judgment that matters. And I, I also remember times as, as a child where I would just think, and, and, and really my one desire was to please my Father, there was nothing greater than my dad turning to me and saying, Isaac, I'm, I'm proud of you. And what we're going to see today in our, our passages is that we, if we have received Jesus, Jesus followed the path of suffering and death that his father set before him. And if we've received Jesus and are in Christ, we have the Father's acceptance and we don't have to look to other people to esteem us. We don't have to look to other people for admiration or for greatness. And, and so the question and, and one of the main themes that I think we'll see through each of the passages that we look at today is this idea of finding sufficiency in Jesus and in the acceptance of God, our Father. We're going to have kind of three responses each one for, for each passage that we look at. And, and the first one we'll see is, is that we should receive Jesus like a child because if we find our sufficiency in Jesus, we recognize that God the Father accepts us as his children. And, and so we don't, like the disciples in the passage, we don't have to prove how great we are to others and we don't have to, to try to earn greatness or earn approval in God the Father's eyes. As we move on, we'll, we'll see that we should understand and prioritize Jesus' 
mission. And, and when our sufficiency is in Jesus, then we won't pursue our own agenda, our own purposes for our lives, but we will seek to know, God, what are you doing in this world right now? And how can I use the gifts that you've given me to jump in? And then the last part of our passage, we'll, we'll come across several people that, that meet Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. And they all each have a barrier that, that hinders them from following Jesus. But if we find our sufficiency in Jesus and, and we are content with the Father's acceptance, we will get to the place where we are willing to give up anything to follow Jesus. And so as we spend this time today in God's word, I'd ask that you would join me with an open heart, that God's spirit would use his word to shape our hearts towards these ends in alignment with God's will for our lives. So just join me in prayer as, as we seek to align our hearts towards that. Father, we thank you for your word, and, and we thank you that we can come together and, and spend a few moments today opening up your word and looking at your son, Jesus. We thank you that he set his face towards following you and accomplishing the plan that you had for him at Jerusalem. We thank you that he was successful and that we, in Christ, that we have your acceptance. And so I, I pray that your spirit would work to shape our hearts and to give us wisdom and discernment to know how to apply this into our lives. Father, we're completely dependent on you, and, and so we ask that you would empower us to respond in this way today. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name, amen. As we've been looking at Luke, and I'd encourage you to turn there, and, and I believe it's page 867 in your pew Bibles if you want to use one of those. As we've been looking at Luke, one of the pressing questions that we've been seeing is, who is Jesus? Earlier in, in chapter 9, Herod asked this, and, and then Jesus posed this question to his disciples, and the disciples are starting to get it. Peter rightly answers, you are the Christ of God. And as we keep reading the chapter, we, Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man, this human divine ruler from Daniel chapter 7, and then we see this transfiguration scene where Moses and Elijah come and, and meet Jesus on the mountain. His glory and majesty is displayed, and they speak to Jesus about his departure, about his death in Jerusalem. And from that moment, Jesus, while he had earlier talked about his suffering and death to his disciples, now that is imminent. His disciples are, are wrestling with what is going on? Here's the kingdom. Jesus is establishing the kingdom. He is the king. And they're wrestling with, with their place in the kingdom. And, and what we're going to see is that they, while they start to confess the truth and understand it with their lips, there's a disconnect between how that truth is, is taking shape in their lives. They're still lagging behind in that area, because Jesus, in the verses just, just before the passage that we'll be reading, Jesus again talks about his death, that it's about to happen in Jerusalem. 
And Luke inserts, inserts this comment. He says, but the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was saying. And as we pick up in, in verse 46, we're gonna see, Luke's gonna give examples of how the disciples are, are not understanding what Jesus is about and his mission. So join me in verse 46 as, as we read these verses together up until verse 50. Jesus tells of his death, and this is how the disciples respond. An argument arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is the greatest. John answered him, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So Jesus talks about his death, and, and how do the disciples respond? They start arguing. Now, it might be helpful for us to to distinguish here between childish and childlike, because Jesus calls them to receive him like a child and to receive the child that he brings to himself. Jesus is calling them to be childlike, but he's certainly not calling them to be childish, which is this response that we see. Jesus has just finished telling them about his death and they don't understand. Because how do they respond? They start arguing about who is the greatest. Who is the greatest? Pretty childish. Now, I've obviously never been a parent. Um, I have the privilege of having two nephews. Um, and many of you are parents. Uh, but I'm, I, I'm imagining you, you felt kind of like Jesus would, would feel in this way. And, and actually, I know because I've been this child. But as parents, I think oftentimes you, you pull your children aside and, and you tell them something really important, maybe in a, in a somber tone, and then the child's just waiting for them to finish talking. So I'm, my parents are talking to me. I'm just waiting for them to be done. And when they finally stop talking, I, I ask, okay, mom and dad, what's for dinner? Completely missing the point. And, and that's a little bit like what's going on here. Jesus is focused on his mission that the Father has given to him. He has just been talking about his death. And they're arguing in a very childish way. But before we just kind of dismiss them as, as being childish, we want to maybe understand why. Why would they respond in, in that way? And, and that might help us to see some of the ways that, that we respond very similarly. But think about what we've been talking about in Luke. God is establishing a kingdom, and he has set his son as king. This, this king, kingdom that's been talked about through the Old Testament, we, we were looking at that last fall as, as we looked at the covenants where God continues to unveil what this kingdom is like and what this king will be like. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and he's the king. Now think, in, in this culture, there were lots of different classes of, of people. 
And so the disciples, you know, they're in a society where, where people are trying to work their way up the ladder. They, they work hard to prove themselves, to prove their worth and earn admiration and, and respect in the eyes of, of the people around them. And you had the, the religious elite, and they were the top of the line. And if you could be with a rabbi, if you could study with a rabbi by association, you were viewed as, as great, one of the top people. And so here are the disciples. They, they start studying with this, this rabbi, and they're slowly starting to realize this isn't just any other rabbi. This is the Messiah that my people have been waiting for for 1,500 years. The Christ, the Son of God, this is the Son of Man. And I get to follow him. I am one of 12 select disciples. Obviously, Jesus is the greatest, but second greatest is still up for grabs. And I only have to compete with 11 other people. I'm sure this is the kind of mentality that would, would lead them to argue who is the greatest. And it's really not all that different from, from some of the ways that we search for acceptance and, and respect in society, whether that's uh, hanging out with, with the cool kids in school, being, being a part of certain conversations in a friend group, doing or saying the things that we think will, will get people to like us, uh, whether that's pursuing a, a certain career, a job, working our way up the, the ladder of that job, making lots of money, having kids and, and wanting to see them be successful so that it reflects on us as, as parents. There are many ways in, in which this kind of mentality can show up in our lives. But the question for us is, are we concerned with the acceptance, the the greatness, the admiration of others? Or are we concerned with acceptance in the Father's eyes? Is that enough for us? Because Jesus confronts this childish thinking. He is the king. He is the king of God's kingdom. But he is the king who came not to be served, but to serve and, and to give his life as a ransom for us. And he calls his followers to do the same. And so Jesus, perceiving what's going on in their hearts, as the, the passage says, he pulls a child aside. And again, in, in this culture, the child would not be the greatest, but would be the, the least, the least significant person. And so he's calling them not to be childish, but to be childlike, to be like a child. And we could turn to Matthew 18. Uh, I have this on the screen if you just want to look up. Jesus says, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like, a like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. When Jesus talks about receiving this child, this is what he has in mind. Receiving this, this insignificant child 
and becoming like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven. Luke also makes this clear in his gospel in chapter 18 when he records Jesus saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. These are familiar verses to us, but Luke also gives us pictures of what this childlike faith looks like. In Luke chapter 18 and and just the previous passage, Jesus tells this, this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And on one hand, we have the Pharisee. He's great in the world's eyes. And from his prayer, you can tell he thinks he's great in God's eyes because he's worked his whole life to obey the law. And in some ways, he's done a decent job at it. But then we have the tax collector. And what does the tax collector cry? He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He sees his unworthiness, and he's, he's desperate. He's dependent on Jesus to save him. We see another example earlier in Luke, in Luke chapter 7, with the centurion. This centurion, his servant, is sick. And there's this man, Jesus, who could maybe heal the servant. And it's interesting, as as we read that narrative, there are people that come up to Jesus and say, Jesus, you should heal him because this man is worthy. He's done all these things. But when the centurion himself gets on the scene... He says to Jesus, he says, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. I am not worthy. Luke gives us two wonderful examples of of what receiving Jesus like a child, what that looks like in a tangible way. And so the question for us is, have you received Jesus? Jesus, do you see your desperate state before him that you're a sinner and you have no way to please God the Father apart from Jesus? Because if you see that, then you'll greatly accept Jesus' open invitation to receive him. And maybe we have. Maybe we've received Jesus. And, And we have to evaluate every day. Do I receive Jesus like a child? Am I content in the Father accepting me? Or am I, am I trying to earn respect, earn favor with him? Am I trying to earn the admiration from the people around me? As we look back in, in Luke 9, earlier in the chapter, Jesus calls people to follow him, and he says, anyone who follows me must deny himself. If we are going to deny ourselves, we, that involves refusing to associate with the person that we are apart from Christ. We realize, I don't want that anymore. That's not going to do it. I need Jesus. I deny myself. I take up my cross and follow him. How different is that from, from the picture that we see here with the disciples? But, you know, even when Jesus pulls a child aside and, and tells them to receive him like a child, they, they still struggle to understand this. Look at verse 49 with me. 
John's response to this, he answers Jesus saying, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Presumably, John's looking for applause from Jesus. He, he thinks he's done something good, but the person was casting out demons in Jesus' name, doing Jesus' work in Jesus' name. But it, it seems that just because that person wasn't a part of the, the group, the 12 disciples, they're trying to get the, that person to stop. Maybe even the disciples were a little jealous because as we saw in our passage last week, a few verses before this, they tried to cast out a demon and they couldn't. And Jesus rebuked them. And so here, Jesus again confronts this type of thinking. Do not stop them. And it's easy for me to think, you know, am I content if, if God were to work in a powerful way, but it wasn't through me? Or maybe as a church, if, if God is going to save many people here in Columbus, but doesn't do so in a significant way here on Maranatha, are, are we content with that? Are we set on Jesus and following him to the point that we can rejoice in how he is using other people? Important questions to ask. My, my hope and my prayer is that we would reflect the attitude of John the Baptist who says, I must decrease and Christ must increase. That is the kind of childlike faith that, that Jesus is asking. I've often asked myself, when I serve, am I serving to try to get the applause of, of people or am I, I doing it because I want to bring glory to Jesus? Jesus calls us to, to receive him like a child. And one of the things about receiving a child is, is that most of the time, you're not really going to benefit from it. Children, especially young children, are helpless, dependent. They don't bring much to the table. And, and we have to recognize that in ourselves that we, compared to God, are like children, but we also want to be willing to step in and help those who cannot help themselves. And so what are some of the ways that, that you can continue to take steps forward to help those who cannot help themselves, help those that, that may be viewed insignificant in, in, in the eyes of, of the world, in the eyes of those around us? What does that look like? Is, is that maybe stepping in here at Maranatha and even helping out in the children's ministry, whether that's Awana, the children's ministry, the nursery? I, I know some people that would love to talk to you, the, the Cooks, the Manwillers, the Everett's. Uh, there are many wonderful ways to, to serve here at Maranatha, and there are many opportunities to serve here in this city. We want to receive Jesus like a child and, and maintain this childlike dependence on him. And as we keep reading, we get to the next passage where we see this focus on understanding and prioritizing Jesus' mission. And so read verses 51 to 56 with me. 
When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. So here we start to see maybe part of the reason why Jesus didn't want to stop the other people from casting out demons in the previous passage. Because not only did he tell his disciples not to do that for the reasons we've discussed, but he also is set on going to Jerusalem. He doesn't really have the time to, to waste to get people to stop casting out demons. His face is set towards Jerusalem. This is a, a really important shift in the book of Luke, where we're now entering about a 10-chapter section to chapter 19, where Luke centers all of Jesus' activity around his path to Jerusalem. Because as we mentioned earlier, Jesus, his death is imminent. It is coming. And Jesus has an urgency to complete his mission and to obey his father. And you may have picked up on, on that passage, Luke alludes to Isaiah, uh, a, a chapter in Isaiah, chapter 50, verse 7. This is one of the servant psalms throughout the book of Isaiah talking about the servant that God will one day send to his people Israel. Read this verse with me. It says, But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be put to shame. This is the servant that God promises to send, and Luke is, is showing us here, this is him this is Jesus. He set his face towards Jerusalem. And, and we see this clearly as, as we look. Jesus reflects this attitude of, I have not been disgraced. I know that I will not be put to shame because the Lord God helps me. We start to see this in, in this passage where Jesus understands that he will be rejected, but we'll continue to see this throughout the book of Luke that Jesus is rejected as a prophet, but he is set on the mission that the Father has given him, and so he doesn't look back. And as, as we see, we see the start right here. You probably caught that as, as we were reading through the passage. The village of Samaria rejects Jesus. He sends his disciples there to, to make preparations for him to stay there, but they reject him. And, and really, they're, they're the first domino to fall in a long line of rejections that Jesus will face. And so, how do the disciples respond? Well, James and John, they have one response. Jesus, do you want us to send down fire? Do you want us to destroy this village? You can almost catch the, the apparent eagerness in, in the question. But I want, I want to stop here for just a moment and, and talk about something that, that could be a little bit confusing. I am reading from the ESV. Depending on your translation, 
you may have a couple extra phrases in verses 54 and, and 55. Verses 54, uh, you might have at the end, it says, like Elijah, or just as Elijah did. Do you want us to send down fire on the city like Elijah did? And there's also a, 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 ne- a phrase in the next verse. Now, these are, are what we call textual variants, and I just kind of want to take a minute to explain what's going on here. When Luke wrote the original manuscript that was then accepted as scripture and and passed around, and you have scribes who would copy the manuscript and then copy it again and, and copy and copy. And so now what we have is we have some of those manuscripts include these phrases and and some don't. And, and there's a whole discipline called text criticism that seeks to determine, are these phrases in the original manuscript that, that Luke wrote for us? And probably what happened is, is that somewhere along the line, as, as a scribe is copying this manuscript, they inserted these comments kind of as a, as a commentary to, to make the connection to what happened in, in the book of Kings, uh, with Elijah. And then when that manuscript was copied, the person just assumed uh, that it was part of the text and copied it as the text. And so how, the question is then, how should we take these phrases? Is it scripture? And it, it seems like mo- what's most likely going on is it's not part of scripture. And so we shouldn't view it as scripture, but we can receive it almost like we would a commentary. This is a helpful way to interpret what's going on in the passage. And as we look at the phrases, it it does seem to kind of make clear some of the things we're we're already, that we've been talking about. Because James and John, they're thinking of probably what happened with Elijah. And Think about that. They're, they're putting themselves in a category with Elijah. Throughout the Old Testament, there, in the history of Israel, there are, there are two main prophets. There's Moses and there's Elijah. And, and so putting themselves in that company, that's, again, a, a pretty bold thing to say. Do you want us to rain down fire like Elijah? And, and then in the next phrase, the second phrase up there, we start to see maybe why Jesus turned and rebuked them. The Son of Man came not to destroy people's lives, but to save them. And that's right what we're seeing in this passage. Jesus did not come to condemn the world the first time, but to save them. He right now is calling people to respond, and he's not destroying them. There will be a day when each one of us will stand before Jesus as judge, but we are not there yet in Luke. And so Jesus is, is focused on his mission that the Father has given to us, to him, and he is intent on heading towards Jerusalem to suffer and die for the sins of the people. And so... The disciples are really struggling to understand what Jesus is all about. What is his mission? The Son of Man did not come to condemn at this moment, but to save the world. And they were struggling to understand that. And the question is, do you understand 
Jesus' mission. Do you understand what Jesus is doing here in Luke as he's heading towards the cross to suffer and die for your sins? And then the question is, do you understand what Jesus is doing now, how he's continuing to build this kingdom? And he's using people, he's using churches to build his kingdom. And oh, we so often struggle in this area. I so often drop the ball. I, either I'm not fully engaged in Jesus's mission, or maybe I, I start to sense where God is leading me, but I just hesitate to, to pull the trigger. In my life, it's usually because of fear. But aren't you so thankful that, that we have a Savior who did not hesitate. He set his face like a flint. He traveled to Jerusalem obeying the Father's will, giving his life. Would we, those who follow him, follow in that example and obey where God is leading, recognizing that today Jesus is building his kingdom through churches? And so that forces us to ask, how am I prioritizing church life? How am I making this body a priority in my life as a member where I am being fed, but also where I am serving and helping other people grow up into maturity? How am I starting to think not just about Maranatha here, but the other churches in our city, the other churches in the world, the other churches that that haven't been started yet? How can I be a part of what God is doing? How can I jump in and participate in Jesus's mission? We have to receive Jesus like a child. We have to see our desperate state and continue to do this day in and day out as we grow to understand and prioritize God's mission in our life. And and my hope and prayer is that God would be using the conversations that we have here as a church family, maybe even today after the service, to help give us wisdom and discernment to, to know how he's gifted each one of us to serve here at Maranatha, how he's gifted each one of us to be a presence in our school, our, our work, our neighborhood, to be a witness to Jesus and to help build his kingdom. And then as we keep reading this passage, verses 57 through 62, we see our third point is that we should be willing to give up anything to follow Jesus. Give up anything to follow Jesus. Let's read these verses together. We're gonna encounter three people that, that each have a barrier in following Jesus. Verse 57, we see that as they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my house. 
Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. We start to encounter these various people. Jesus is set on his mission and comes across three different people on his way. And so let's look at these, these barriers. The first person says, I will follow without even prompt. I will follow you wherever you go. And it seems like Jesus is able to perceive what's going on in, in this person's heart. We saw earlier in, in verse 47, I think he did that with the disciples. He was able to discern their motivation behind what they were saying and, and how they were acting. And remember, Jesus was just rejected by Samaria. He was planning to stay there, but got rejected, and so he had to keep traveling. And so Jesus is just telling him, hey, birds, foxes, they all have a place to stay, but I, I don't have a home. And if you're going to follow me in this moment to Jerusalem, you're not going to have a home either. And we don't have any indication in the passage of, of how this person responded. But we encounter a, a second person, and, and Jesus makes this call, follow me. But the man asks to go bury his father. Now, at this, at this time, uh, people often practice kind of a two-stage burial. Initially, when a parent would die, you would, you would put the parent in a cave and and then about a year later, this, this man could go and, and bury his father more permanently with his ancestors. And so perhaps he was in between that first and second year and was waiting for that second more permanent burial. Uh, but it's also possible that, that the man's father wasn't even dead yet. So what are we supposed to make of of Jesus's response. Perhaps this man was trying to obey the Ten Commandments to honor his, his mother and his father. And we see later in Luke 18 that, that Jesus does affirm that commandment to honor our parents. But in the previous chapter, Luke 8, he, he does also, when someone mentions his mother and his, his brother, he responds that his mother and brother are those who hear God's word and, and put it into practice. And, and so Jesus seems to, while we have biological families, he seems to be also placing an emphasis on our spiritual family, on those who have likewise committed to follow Jesus and those who hear God's word and do it. And so he's calling this man to follow me now. Because whatever the case is, this, this man's response is essentially, I'll, I'll follow you someday off in the future, whether that's in a year when I bury my father or maybe waiting until the, the father dies. Perhaps the man was even driven to, to receive his father's inheritance and knowing that following Jesus would be very, there would be a lack of stability he, he wanted to make sure that his affairs were in order. It'd be similar to us maybe saying, I'll follow you, God, but I want to wait till I retire and have a comfortable retirement income before I make that kind of commitment. I'm not sure exactly what's going on here, but Jesus is 
set on his mission, and he's calling the person to follow him now. He can't wait for up to a year for this man to accomplish the other things he needs to do. And we start to see Jesus' urgency a little more clearly, even in the next verses. The third person wants to go back and, and say goodbye to his family. And again, maybe there's some kind of ulterior motive, but at the very least, Jesus doesn't have the time, the, the day, several days, the week, for him to make the journey back to his family. Jesus is on his mission now. And Jesus affirms this and, and seems to kind of summarize up what's going on in this passage when he says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. If God has given you a task, pursue it wholeheartedly. That's what Jesus is doing, and that's what he calls his followers to do too. Just to explain this plow illustration, because it's probably unfamiliar to most of us who are not farmers, especially first century farmers. Um, but if you are plowing a, a field, you want those lines to be straight. And so just think, if, if you're plowing and you start to turn back, you're going to veer off and, and the field is going to be crooked. So Jesus is just using this common illustration to show that, that if you have a mission and you get distracted, you're not going to be able to accomplish that mission. No one like that is fit for the kingdom of God. All three barriers are, are a little different. It seems like maybe there are some, some similarities. But in all three cases, we see Jesus' urgency and his focus to accomplish what God the Father has called him to do. Remember at the beginning, we talked about finding our sufficiency in Jesus, in, in the Father's acceptance. And Jesus is such a perfect example of that. He has the Father's acceptance, and so he is okay not having a home. He is okay living on the road, not having the comforts of life. Are we? Are we so secure in our relationship with God? Do we understand Jesus' mission with such clarity? Do we prioritize it in our lives so that we are willing to give up anything to follow Jesus? Increasingly, we probably will in the culture that we're living on, and if we are following Jesus, we will sacrifice. We will suffer. Jesus talks about his followers taking up their cross. And, and sometimes I think about that. And, and the idea of literally giving up my life seems so foreign. And maybe God will lead in that direction one day. But what I'm often drawn to is, am I sacrificing in the very ordinary daily ways of life? Am I submitting and obeying God in, in the small things that he has called me to so that he continues to stretch me and, and grow me to the point where maybe someday it is a huge sacrifice? 
Are we as individuals doing that? Are we as a, a body here, as a church, are we committed to this kind of discipleship where we're willing to give up the comforts of life, where we're willing to give up anything that God asks us to? It's, it's a tough question. So the question for us to ponder is, what are we willing to give up to be welcomed in to God's family as a son or a daughter? What are we willing to give up to participate in what God is doing right here in this world, building his kingdom through his church? What are we willing to, to give up and to hear those words at the end of our life? Welcome, child. Well done, my good and faithful servant. God has already given us himself. He's given us his son and his spirit. Is that enough? Is that enough for us? If so, we'll continue to, to walk in daily obedience. We'll be, continue to be sensitive to, to God's leading and how he is calling us to follow him in, in ways that are often very difficult and require sacrifice. And as we do, we have that forward hope of, of Christ's return when we will see him face to face. So as we, as we wrap up today, as we think about God's sufficiency and, and whether he is really enough for us to receive Jesus like a child, to understand and prioritize God's mission and to give up anything Will you join me in, in prayer as, as we ask God to do this work in our hearts today and tomorrow and the next day? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for sending your son Jesus and, and how he displayed the glory of you, Father that we get to glimpse your glory as, as we look into your word, as we see the sacrifice, the suffering, the death. Father, I pray that you would help us to see our need uh, for Jesus' sacrifice. Um, I pray that we would receive you and, and that you would give us wisdom and discernment to know what that looks like each and every day, to walk in obedience to you to live a life full of faith where we listen and obey as you lead us to, to give up certain things. Father, I ask for myself and I, I ask for each individual in this room that you would work in a powerful way. And Father, we're dependent on you to do that. And so we, like the little children that we are, we, we come and we ask and trust that you will accomplish your work. We pray these sins in your son Jesus' name. Amen.